Well, how do we continue in a spirit of communion? Have you ever noticed that people have a tendency to start really well, but end really poorly? We start habits, we start goals. You, know, you, ever, you ever been to a wedding and you notice that they just got a real tender heart toward each other? And you're like, well, they're going to really do well. And you jump forward a couple of years, you jump forward a couple of months, and you're like, ugh. <laughs> you look at your own parents and you're like, wow, they don't even seem to really like each other. And you get to a place in your own marriage, you're like, wow, how did we get here? We started so well, we don't seem to be heading toward ending well. We say we're not going to compromise, we say we're going to be committed to the truth, and yet somewhere along the way, instead of starting well and ending well, we end up compromising our integrity. Well, that's really not going to work here. I guess that thing God said is outdated here. And therefore, instead of ending well, we end marriages, we end friendships, we end spiritual goals, and we certainly end ministries. Well, I think every one of us can actually start well, wherever you are, you can start now, start well, and you can end well by learning how to conform your life step by step, hour by hour at times, how to conform your life to God's word. In contrast, what happens during your life is there's this temptation not to conform your life to God's word, but to begin to conform God's word to your life. Well, I guess that doesn't work. Out with that. I guess that doesn't work. I'll lose some faith there. I guess out with that. I'll choose bitterness over forgiveness in my marriage. And, And instead of conforming our life to God's word, we start to conform God's word to our life. And I want to start today by looking at two groups in this passage, one that started well and one that ended well. And here's my hope. And I've said this before, but this comes from the the deepest part within me. I don't want to be someone's sad story. I don't want to be my wife's sad story. I don't want to be my kid's sad story. And I don't want to be the church's sad story. I want to end well. Now, in one sense, as a a broken human being who, but by the grace of God, I'm already a sad story. But I want to be the kind of sad story that showed that God can sustain you, and even if you've stepped off the path, you can get back on it. So let's look at Mary and Joseph and how they started their family well, and we'll look at Simeon and how he ended his life well, and see if we can learn some lessons along the way, how to get on that path. First, Mary and Joseph. They started well by conforming their life, their decisions, their priorities, their finances to God's word, a periodic uh, way in which they did that. The first thing we see is that Mary and Joseph conformed their decisions to God's covenant. So it was on the eighth day was completed since he was born uh, for the circumcision of the child. And his name was called Jesus. And they named him Jesus on the eighth day because part of the Jewish tradition, that's not how you get to heaven, so to speak, is being circumcised. Paul's very clear on that in Romans. The way you get to heaven is you believe in God and he credits to you for righteousness. But the way you join the community, the Hebrew community, is that... From the Abrahamic covenant on, it said you need to take your children on the eighth day and have them circumcised to mark them in the community and ask God to extend his grace to them. So, eighth day, they're traveling, they're making decisions to say we've got to do what God called us to do and we want to make decisions based on what God's asked us to do and we're going to name this child Jesus just as the angel told us to 
And just as the Bible commands on the eighth day, we're going to have him circumcised. Now this tradition actually comes from Genesis chapter 17. So God has given a covenant to Abraham in Genesis 12. It mentions it again in Genesis 14, 15. But in Genesis 17, something key happens. If you read the first four or five verses, he's still called Abram. But when he gets circumcised, he's named Abraham, the father of many. And so Jewish scholars and Jewish rabbis begin to connect that on your circumcision is the day the name sticks. That's when it's locked in. Based on what happened with Abraham, when he was circumcised, that was the day that his name, God, changed from Abram to Abraham formally. In the same way that when Mary and Joseph make the decision on the eighth day to call him Jesus, they're saying, we're naming him, we're locking in our decision permanently based on what the covenant and God told us to do. Have you ever wondered... Why in the world did God choose circumcision? You ever wondered that? That's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? I remember, you know, part of our vision as a church is to create exploring environments for people unconvinced about Jesus, God, and the Bible. You know, connecting environments for everyone and equipping environments for those who really want to be equipped on the Word of God. So over the years, I'll get invited to come to different exploring groups. And one time I got invited to this exploring group, and it was, uh, it was all women in this group. It's going to be important to the story. I show up, and I'm like, hey, it's so glad to be here. I understand a lot of you got questions about the Bible, the problem of evil, or freedom of choice. Uh, I love talking about this stuff. All questions are open. First question. Yeah, why do you think God chose Circumcision. We got some brie or whatever that, whatever that egg stuff is you guys have at all these Bible studies for women? Crackers, anyone? And I said, well, I think the answer is, and I don't know for sure, but I did a little research on it. I think God said, what's the one thing that you would not in any way become self-righteous about? What is the one thing that you would know for sure is something that's a sign of what I'm doing for you, not what you're doing for me? Circumcision. And yet, you look at the Old Testament, it's all people getting proud and self-righteous about who's circumcised and who's not. Now, in case you don't know, circumcision is removing the end of the skin from your penis. And I say that because it, when I was at Moody, we had a, a, an Old Testament professor who was up talking about the Abrahamic covenant and the importance of circumcision. Very serious talk about serious things. Girl in the second row. Dr. Marty, Dr. Marty, Dr. Marty. Yes. I don't get it. You don't get what? <laughs> Circumcision. Why would God want the Israelites to take a piece of skin off their forehead and give it to them? <laughs> Dr. Marty went and explained what circumcision was, and she slowly oozed down into her chair. But Mary and Joseph are, are forming their decisions based on what? God has commanded them. The second thing we see is obedience. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So they are obeying their decisions and obeying, saying, God, because you told us to do this, we're naming him. Not after our family name, but after the name you gave us. Yeshua, Joshua, God is my salvation, Jesus. Now it's interesting here that the text reminds us that this name, Jesus, was given to him before he was even conceived. That this is an eternal God who had a name before he was even conceived, he existed. And here again we see the deity or the, the Godhead of 
was shown right here in this text, that his name would be that significant. Now, this is not a works message. In fact, I try not to give any works messages. It's always by faith that we work. So where does work and obedience come together? And here's how. If you believe something, you actually obey it. And if you're having trouble obeying something, you don't have an obedience problem, you have a a belief problem. If I really believe God's way of handling anger is best, I will obey it. I need to be slow to anger and slow to speak because I believe God's way is best. If you have trouble with how you handle your money, it's probably because you don't really believe that it's better to give than to receive. You don't really believe you have riches in eternity that moth and rust can't touch. You don't really believe that selflessness is the way to live, and that's why you don't obey it. So instead of working on your obedience, go back and look at Jesus. Go back and look and say, do I really believe that to find your life you lose it? Because if I really believe that, I'll obey it. Conforming your individual decisions to God's word is saying, do I really believe, not the Bible generally, but these commandments specifically. I remember, you remember the Scantrons in school? We had to fill out your name, C, Chad, H, A, D. When Quinn was born, I thought it would be fun. And actually, when Javen was born here, so Javen goes down to UC, so I go and pick him up on my jet ski, and we go jet skiing together. Um, and so this is the day where I picked him up with, with Quinn, and we're going down there. And I remember when Javen was born, I lost the battle with my wife. And when Quinn was born, I lost the battle with my wife. And you're going to find out she's wiser than me. I thought it would be fun to name our kids something that would fill up the entire Scantron. A long first name, a long second name. So I went with Methuselah Mephibosheth Hovind. Would that be a great name? Yeah, she won the battle. So there's Javen and Quinn. There's this naming, though, that names are significant. So Javen's name, for example, is Noah's grandson is Javen. And so I've always said, Javen, Javen, it's not about doing everything right. It's about new beginnings. And, and Javen had a new beginning time and time again. That whenever you step off the path, new beginning, get back on the track. And Quinn's middle name, Quinn Jackson Hoven, is very significant. Because his birth mother that we adopted from, his name was Jackie. So we named his middle name Jackson because he's Jackie's son. A way to remind us of what a gift he is. So names are significant. But these are decisions that you say, I'm going to obey God, not because I feel like it, not because it's easy, but because I'm conforming my decisions and my obedience to what God says is the best way. Three, Mary and Joseph conform their priorities to the law of God. Two verses mentioned here, Exodus and Leviticus. When the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember five months ago, in the book of Leviticus, we studied the decontamination offering. This is that offering. This isn't a sin offering. This isn't an offense offering. This is after you've had blood and she's given birth, you need to go get decontaminated with what's called a purification offering. So here they are, exactly what Leviticus told them. They're coming to offer this offering before God to get... uh, pure, um, ceremonially clean before them. And they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So again, look at their priorities. Making a long trip soon after being pregnant. Making this a priority in their life. To present him to the Lord because of another verse in the Bible. It's either Exodus or Deuteronomy. That says, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. 
And in the same way that your firstborn lamb was to be sacrificed to the Lord, every firstborn male child belonged to the Lord. And so this was their firstborn child, and they're presenting him to the Lord, saying, God, this is your child. We want you to use him for your purposes. But here we again see them very clearly walking through their priorities based on God's word. Now here's a reconstruction of Herod's temple. And I want to give you a feel of what it would be like for Mary and Joseph to be walking in that day. They're just coming out of the court of Gentiles, so there can be Gentiles and Jews behind them. They're walking into this section. This is a recreation of what it would have looked like in its day. And this is called the court of women. We know that because Anna is there, prophetess Anna. Mary's allowed in here. They're not yet in the holy place. But there is a stairwell they're going to walk up to. So this is Simeon. He'd be standing up on these stairs. Behind him is the, is the, is the priestly holy place where they're going to offer the sacrifice. Notice in Joseph's arms is a cage holding two turtle doves. Those two turtle doves are the purification offering of those who are poor to get right with God. And Mary's going to hand Jesus to Simeon, and Simeon is going to give this blessing, recognizing his name and recognizing how God has honored that this is that day. And after the blessing, he will then, if he's a priest, we know he's a prophet, if he's a priest as well, he will then take the two turtle doves, walk through those double doors, and offer the sacrifice on their behalf. So this is what it would have felt like. This is what it would have looked like. And notice there alone, the text seems to imply it's just Mary and Joseph, no community. Now let's go back to the text. I want to show you something. As they come into this temple, John Kirby actually emailed me and noted this this week. He said, did you notice with John the Baptist at his dedication, there's a whole community there. They were asking questions like, hey, is that really his name? That's not a family name. In the text here, there's no they. Mary and Joseph are alone. Nobody showed up with them. They're still being shunned by having a child out of wedlock for not doing it the right way. Their motives are questioned. Their marriage is questioned. Even their dedication is questioned. So instead of having a community with them, as was common in those days, they are conforming their decisions to God even though they feel very alone. And that is true. If you want to obey God, there's going to be times people are going to question your motives, question your decisions, and it's going to feel very lonely. And those are going to be moments you have a tendency to go, let's just get off the path and forget it. I'm going to make a compromise here. But Mary and Joseph decided to continue to conform their life to God's word, even when it wasn't popular, even when they were being second-guessed. Next, They conformed their finances to the law of God. They want to offer a sacrifice according to what is in the law of the Lord. So again, this is from Leviticus again. A pair of turtle doves and a partridge. No, no, not those turtle doves. (laughs) But these turtle doves or two young pigeons. So this was an incredibly costly gift for people who were poor, but it was affordable. And that's why when God talks about giving in the Old Testament and New Testament, he set up a percentage-based system so that everyone would give and that percentage would set you up to remind you what God's given to you. And so for the poor, giving two turtle doves was a, was a high percentage but a doable percentage versus somebody who was middle class or rich was giving a whole, a whole lamb or giving a whole piece of a whole cattle. 
And I think as you grow, I can tell you how many people, as they begin to grow, they never really wrestle with conforming their finances to God's word. Oh, they'll give it $20 here, $10 here. But never saying, God, I really want to. Be- I really believe that you think percentage giving is the way of joy. I want to increasingly get to giving a percentage of my income away. And, and I'm not sure I really believe in God's priorities, that the orphan, the widow, his bride, the church, should be the kind of things I invest in. God, do I really believe that? And if so, am I conforming my checkbook, conforming my decisions, conforming my financial decisions to make generosity and the church and sacrifice a priority. And if I started giving 10% 20 years ago, have I ever wrestled with progressive giving, progressively becoming more generous? Mary and Joseph, at the very early stages of their marriage, decide that they're going to make God's word the way in which they make their financial decisions as well. And this is why we know the, the three kings haven't come later, right? Because when the three kings come, they're pretty rich for a while. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And God will use that gift when he's two years old to finance their two-year uh, operation of hiding from Herod while they're in Egypt. And so at this point, they don't have a lot of money, but actually pretty soon after this, a large amount of money is coming their way with the three kings at Jesus' two-year birthday. Next, we're going to move to uh, Simeon who they're meeting here in the temple. And it doesn't say for sure how old he is. I'm going to guess he's in his 80s because Anna's in in her 80s. It does say that this moment is a signification for him that he can now die well. So I think he's toward the end of his life. I think he's in his 80s. And he is going to end well in several ways. First, look what the text says. Simeon... He refuses, despite his circumstances, to conform or compromise God's word to his life or to his circumstances. It says here that, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation or the the comfort or the redemption of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, speaking to him, talking to him. And it has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death... Until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he's been waiting. Faithfully. And we're going to pick apart different verses in here. And show you some of the things that he could have compromised and he didn't. First thing, he doesn't compromise his doubt. He's living in Jerusalem. And he is just and devout. And if you look at the history of the Old Testament priests. Most of them do not stay just and devout. They become corrupt. They begin to give up on God. Look at the Pharisees. It all became about rules and how righteous they could be. The Sadducees became the religious liberals in their day, questioning resurrection, questioning biblical integrity, questioning when that was really true. The Herodians began to compromise by saying, we'll take a little bit of the Greek gods and a little bit of the Jewish gods and mix them up together, and that allowed them to get in good with Herod, and they got a lot of money out of it. So it was standard practice not to keep trusting in God as a priest. To say, you know, I doubt this really works anymore. I think I'll just have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of what I want. And he's living in Jerusalem. If he is 80, it means he was there 80 years ago during the time that that General Pompey came in and destroyed and, and, and had a massive battle that involved the killing of priests and leaders in Jerusalem. 
And so he could look at those Old Testament prophecies and say, you know what, I'm looking at my circumstances. The Romans are in charge. They've taken over Jerusalem. We're barely hanging on here by a thread. I'm not sure the promises of God are ever going to happen. And who would fault him for it? But he refused. He refused to let his doubt master him. He refused to let his doubts and the legitimate bad circumstances he was in in Jerusalem conform his life and bring the integrity and the promises of God to a level that he didn't believe him anymore. He chose to believe God's word over his circumstances. That's how he ended well. The second thing he does, it's not just doubt. Look at his devotion. His devotion. He refused to compromise God's word to his excuses. Look at that key word in the middle, waiting. He's been waiting for decades, I'm guessing. 80 years for God's Messiah to come. And he stays devoted even while he waits. And there is nothing that will challenge you to not end well. There is nothing that will question your ability to stay on the path than waiting. Waiting for your marriage. Waiting for a prodigal to return. Waiting for God's promises to come through. Waiting for the health crisis to be over. That's where a lot of people get off the track. And there's no judgment here. I'm saying it is hard to learn the skill of waiting on the Lord and staying devoted to Him when your waiting seems so much more real than His promises. Waiting is hard. And it's when we're in those times of waiting we most need to stay devoted to God's Word over our circumstances. One of my favorite stories I've told before, but uh, Beth and I were playing bingo recently, and it reminded me again of how waiting is not part of my family heritage. My grandmother went into a nursing home, and while she was there, my grandma was very much about efficient card playing. When we played canasta or we played cribbage with my, mom, with my grandmother, I would say, well, let me grab a drink first. Are we going to drink or are we going to play cards? Because you can't do both. And boy, if you took an extra second... When you're playing cards, Grandma's starting to get huffy and puffy and annoyed because you play efficiently at Grandma's house. She's now in a nursing home. And she's wheeled into the bingo hall. And she's already got her ten cards ready to go, got the dopper ready. And the guy's like, all right, is everybody ready? Yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, ready. Does everyone have a card? Yes, I got a card, I got a card. Anyone? Oh, need some cards in the back. Let's get you a card. Oh, someone else. All right, we're going to call the first number. B12. Grandma. B12. I want to say that number again, in case you didn't hear it. B-12. Now, does anyone need that again before we move on? My grandma's like, she's telling us the story, actually, because we weren't there for it. And she's getting so irritated. And I'm sitting there waiting. He said, the third time. And then I'm like, well, who could not have heard it the three times that he said that thing? And then just we're about to move on, somebody in the back, what was that number? My grandma's like, oh, that was it. I was in, I got my wheelchair, and I rolled out of there. I'm never going back. 
So there's a heritage in me not to necessarily appreciate. I've been trained to not wait. But I tell you, there's a way in which God trains us. And trying to stay devoted to him while we're going through this is key to ending well. Thirdly, it's not just his doubt. It's not just his, his devotion. But it's his dependence. And this is so striking to me. Here's a guy who has prestige. He, he has power. He has a title. He would have, and he's one of the few priests who stayed pure and righteous. If anyone had a temptation to make their acceptance before God based on their good works, based on their self-sufficiency, it would be Simeon. Yet all embedded in this chapter is his emphasis on not his sufficiency, but God's sufficiency. Not his spirit, but the Holy Spirit. This is an Old Testament saint. And look at the emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The man was just and devout. That's not the emphasis. Waiting for the consolation. That wasn't the emphasis. The Holy Spirit was upon him. He had a sense that he and God were friends. They had a relationship. He was in commune with the Holy Spirit. So much so, this is one of the few guys who gets what Jesus is all about. One of the few guys who gets that the scripture testified that he would be a suffering servant. One of the few guys that gets that he was to come for both the Jews and the Gentiles. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He refused to take a little bit of God and become self-sufficient. And become arrogant. And to lack teachability and lack dependence. And this is what I see, and you've seen this too in your own life and people around you. They start well humility, and they increasingly be a self-righteous. They think they're above the rules. They think they're more important than they really are. People give them titles. People give them power. People give us titles and power. And with that, we become more and more and more self-righteous and arrogant. And then we topple down and don't end well. Because we became self-sufficient, not God-sufficient. We didn't emphasize, it doesn't matter what I've done or will do, God, it's about you. It's about relationship with you. It's about what you're doing, what you've blessed me with, what opportunities you've given me. And we deflect the glory. We deflect the, the, the credit back to the one who's given it to us. The Holy Spirit. And look at how he and the Holy Spirit have been talking. He listens to the nudgings of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's responded to the leadings of the Holy Spirit. This is 80 years of a guy who continues to conform his leadings, his thoughts, his interpretation to what the Spirit and the Word are speaking to him about. And how often do we turn the Bible into a moral code instead of learning how to be in relationship with his Holy Spirit? And we start trying to produce our own patience and produce our own goodness and produce our own self-righteousness, our own righteousness, instead of getting the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You know how you get the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life? Not because you try harder. I need to get linked on and talk to and get close to the Holy Spirit so his fruit will actually come out of me, not my fruit will come out of me. Third thing, on that particular day, it says, he came by the Spirit into the temple. The Spirit led him that day to say, I got something to show you today. Let's go on a journey to the temple. Somebody else could have got this moment. Somebody else could have got this dedication. But he was feeling the leadings of the Spirit, obeyed the leadings of the Spirit, and came to the temple that day when Mary and Joseph walked in. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to them, 
to do to him according to the custom of the law. He took him in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, Oh, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. This is the promise I've been waiting for for decades. And despite my circumstances, despite my doubts, despite my waiting, you came through on your promises. Oh, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation, is what he says. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared before the face of all people. And that word, salvation, is the word Yeshua. And though the the New Testament is written in Greek, he almost surely was speaking in Hebrew as a priest. So he would have said, for my eyes have seen the Yeshua. Another way of saying that, my eyes have seen the Joshua. My eyes have seen the salvation, and the word Yeshua is the Hebrew name of Jesus. My eyes have seen the Jesus. The salvation you promised. And he would be, and look what else he got right, a light to bring revelation to the Hebrews, to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And this 80-year-old man understood what it meant for God to be a salvation, and he understood what it meant to reach religious and irreligious people. That the Messiah was not for religious people. It was so religious people could find their link in him and by grace extend that light to people who are unconvinced about the Hebrew Scriptures. Which is one of the reasons we do what we do as a church. We encourage you to build relationships with Gentiles, people who didn't grow up religious. The reason we have four services and two of them are different from others is because of this. Jesus has always been about reaching the convinced and the unconvinced, the Jews and the Gentiles. Being the salvation to all. And what happens when you don't end well is you start linking up your identity to your good works, to your titles, to your promotions. And the problem with all of that is that none of it is secure. You can lose your reputation. You can lose your good works. You can have a good hour and then you have a terrible week. You can be very moral for a decade and then you can realize what a sinner you really are and that you've just really been sort of holding it back and it all blows up. What Jesus offers is a chance to link yourself to him, to be dependent on him as your salvation and as your identity. Every year, about December, I take Quinn out and we go skiing together. We've been skiing about five years together now. He skis between my legs. And he is all over the place, let me tell you. He has a great time going down the skis, and I'm breaking my back. He's tall enough that I'm almost not breaking my back. I got in this harness, and so as he's skiing, his skis get tangled up, and I'm trying not to get tangled up, and I can grab the harness. I can literally hold him with one hand and set him back down, and he'll keep skiing again. The problem I found is that when we get on the ski lift, there's no safety mechanism that comes down the front. When we go skiing once or twice a week at Perfect North. Because of that... If he falls, I can't grab him. I have nothing to grab onto to hold me from going off. So the last five years, I've had to take my arm, mangle it around the seat, stick it through the metal. I've got to take my glove off for that whole 20-minute ride up. And my arm is stuck in this position. And then i got to get under his shirt and grab his suspenders so I have something solid. Because as we're going up the ski lift, if he hears a kid yell, Hey, buddy! 
My son is deathly afraid of babies, and every loud pitch sound sounds like a baby. And he'll go from being totally happy to leaning, jumping off this 40-foot drop. It's terrifying. And so I have learned how to sing songs the whole way up, how to count numbers to get him all the way up. And I've got this whole thing sort of worked out, but it's terrifying. So last year, I, I realized I got a one. I've been through shoulder therapy twice. I, I'd like to not keep doing that. <laughs> Secondly, I got to find something safer as he's getting bigger to keep him on. So now every time he comes on, I have this that he skis with. So as soon as he and I get on the ski lift, I literally link him to the ski lift. Now I can hold him without breaking my arm, and he is permanently secure. So he can still lunge, he can still move, but he's linked to something secure. And the whole way up, we still tell stories, we still sing songs, we still count, and we still get frustrated at those people who slow the lift down because Quinn's only got so much patience, and I've, I'll use everything I can to extend it. But he's no longer in danger because he's secured to something immovable. And what Jesus offers as salvation is a chance to link you to his grace, to link you to his good works, not your good works, to link him to his reputation, not your reputation, to link yourself to his riches, not your own riches. And so that when you have instability, which you will in your circumstances, in your life, in your good works, you're kept by the Holy Spirit, whose deposit of God's Spirit in you is the guarantee of heaven to come. And that becomes the security by which we end well. Because we don't start by grace and then live by works. We start by faith and we live by faith, daily deciding, my identity is in Him. My power is in Him. My humility comes from being a recipient of His grace. Doubt. Devotion, dedication, uh, sorry, dependence, and lastly, dedication. This is the worst child dedication ever, ever. Joseph and his mother marveled at these things spoken of him. It's good so far. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mother Mary, Oh, this is so wonderful. Imagine your child, your grandchildren's dedication. The pastor holds your child in their arms and says, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to say to this new mom as I hold their new child? Oh. This child, this child is going to fall. Honey, your child is destined for the fall. And more than that, the fall and rising of many. Many people are going to rebel because of your child. And come here, mom, come here, mom. When I look at your child, what God says to me is, a sword is going to go right through your heart. It's going to be so painful watching him die. The worst child dedication ever! And yet, Simeon knew what the suffering servant was about. He wasn't about being a conquering king. He was to come and let his arm be mangled, and his arm be mangled. That he would fall, and a sword would pierce her heart, because he so wanted to link onto us at the cost of his own suffering. To give us something secure to be secured to. And that is why this child came. Not to be born, but to die. And if you and I want to start well and end well, we've got to make the decision to be transformed day by day, moment by moment, in our habits, in our decisions, in our priorities, during our times of waitings and doubts, by saying, God, I'm deciding right now, 
to conform my will to yours, to conform my feelings to you. God, I want to be the kind of person who ends well, staying in the grace you've extended to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your powerful reminder of grace, grace, grace. Thank you for being the light of our salvation. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to convict us today of areas that we have decided we know better than you. And we have decided to compromise your voice and the voice of your word to do our own thing our own way. God, convict us and put us back on the path that we can find the grace and forgiveness that comes only through you. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week.